Have you heard the news today? The world's become a better place. I wonder how. And everybody sings in peace. There's only one thing that we need. It's unapologetic. Welcome back to Unapologetic. My name is Anna. I don't know if you remember me from last year, but I was here uh, as a speaker. But this year we have a new team, new speakers, so it's going to be very exciting. So I'm going to let one of the other speakers introduce herself. So hi everyone, I'm Claire. I'm 20 years old and I'm in my last year of sociology. I'm really interested in culture and uh, pop culture specifically, so I'm really excited to join everyone on the podcast. And I'm Dami, I'm doing a master's in sociology, so I'm new to the UFA, and uh, I'm here as the, uh, on the re- from the research team as the resident um, Irish pronunciation specialist for exactly. today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start with some uh, disclaimers beforehand. As last year, we are also, this year, only students doing our own research, so please don't take this as like the holy word or anything, it's just research we're doing on our free time. And second of all, we're not trying to speak for any particular group, so yeah, just bear it in mind as we go along in this episode. Yeah, as you can guess from Domi's insight into Irish pronunciation, this episode is going to be based in Halloween, and various social aspects i guess (laughs) so today we're going to talk about halloween because it's the spooky season and actually during our meeting for the podcast we were talking about where is halloween actually coming from and we were very surprised uh, to find out that it's actually a celtic uh, tradition so dummy is here to talk some more about it yeah so um i suppose halloween has its origin in uh... Celtic pagan festival, um, which would be the eve of Samhain, which is November. So it's the arrival of the winter and it's the change of the seasons into uh, the end of the harvest, the uh, arrival of the darkness as well, which especially today with daylight savings, we lose an hour that week. And um, I suppose also it's, it's, it would have been kind of New Year, the closest thing to New Year's in pagan terms in Ireland, Wales, not Wales, sorry, Scotland, Ireland, Scotland mainly. I think just like a small note, because you mentioned this before, that even the idea of Celts, as you were saying, it's something that arises like in comparison, right, to like other groups of people around in that area. Uh, So I think it's just important to mention it uh, because as we will talk before, like these oppositions and like hierarchies of power are very important so like it's like yeah for them they were just people but then others saw them as Celts right yeah of course yeah I mean we we picture from our current perspective the Celts as if they were civilization but the Celts are essentially everybody who wasn't the Romans so when I say Ireland and Scotland it's because the Romans didn't go any further mainly because they weren't bothered it was too cold uh, (laughs) Hibernia um (laughs) But also, well, it was um, it was what was left over. So, I mean, the Celts are the barbarians and, you know, kind of Greek terms. They're Gaul as well um, for the Romans as they advanced through Europe. Of course, the north of Spain and right across to the west of France, there are some related cultures as well to the Celts. So the main point to take away from that is that the Celts are 
not exactly civilization, but they exist in terms of what they are not, and that they're not civilization. Basically, the Celts didn't call themselves Celts. The, they're only defined in terms of what they're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Yeah, maybe you can actually also talk a bit about um, what this tradition then included. Like, what did people do okay. in this night? Yeah, so the arrival of the winter, uh, Samhain and November, would be the arrival of death, essentially. So the idea is that well, you have the underworld, you have the world of the living and you have the underworld. The underworld is like what we imagine now as hell, but it was inhabited by a race that pre-existed the Celts in Ireland, which is uh, the Danann. So it's the idea of a kind of an inverse underworld that exists underneath us and there's portals between that world and our world, so you have to respect for it. So the she, the fairies, come from the underworld, but the fairies are kind of like the non-blasphemous... Um, version that's left over after the arrival of Christianity. So Morrigan is the goddess of the underworld, let's say. She's kind of the, the sovereignty goddess. She personifies the land and with that death. Uh, Morrigan would be in Irish. Um, she inhabits the underworld. She comes out, she brings her beasts every winter. They come out and kill everything that lives, basically, is the main idea. They come out through different portals to the underworld. Uinagat uh, would be the main one that I mentioned, Uvnagat, which is uh, Cave of the Cats, it's translated to, but it's actually a mistranslation because Kaf, C A T H, is a battle. So, really, it's the battle cave because traditionally um, soldiers and warriors and that would go into the cave and spend a night alone in the cave in the darkness uh, to confront Morrigan and have her, you know. Uh, scared the shit out of them essentially <laughs> for want of a better word um, to test her metal as they would say so it's called the battle cave for that reason but this portal basically the idea is that Morgan would come out with her beasts every year for Ikehauna for Samhain and that would be what would bring death into the land that would kill all the trees that would mean there would be no more harvest and brings the darkness and that so Ikehauna is greeting this um, I suppose the tradition would be bonfires you'd let the fire go out in your house which is something you do it uh, would have done at a lot of different seasons in ireland that you would have a a bonfire um a communal bonfire and people would let the fires go out in their own homes and then bring back ashes from the bonfires and embers to start the fire for the new season in their own home from the embers of the bonfire from the tradition also that would be to ward off so that you wouldn't be killed you could also possibly in certain parts of ireland dress up as a beast or as something that's not living in order to disguise yourself so that when they come and kill everything, they don't kill you, essentially. It's not the idea that they would actually kill you. I mean, of course they could, but it's it's the idea of the fear of the unknown, the same as going into the cave and what comes out of it uh, for Ikehana, for Halloween. So as you're speaking in like, all of these things that uh, Morrigan personifies, there's a lot to do with uh, the seasons, right? Because you're talking about death and darkness and like this happens the 1st of November. So, yeah, just wanted to highlight that because it's very important for what we're going to talk about next. Yeah, so don't miss that point, mm-hmm. particularly. Yeah. yeah, so I guess that's more of the, yeah, what traditionally happened uh, in the tradition. In uh, Well, yeah, of course, traditionally in the tradition. But <laughs> <laughs> I guess then historically that also evolved and maybe you can still talk about that uh, in relation to the church and then abroad. 
Okay, yeah. So with the Christianization of Ireland, I mean, a lot of things would have that were pagan would have been seen as blasphemous. So that's why we're left with the fairies are the main thing that's left from the she. The she really being like the spirit realm, like the underworld, the Tuhididanan and whatever. But all those gods and goddesses had to kind of become part of a kind of a, like non-religious um, mythology as opposed to being the religion, essentially, or what's the closest thing to what we would now consider religion at the time in folklore. Um so I suppose it was Christianized as All Saints, which is the Day of the Dead in a sense, isn't it? Or it's All Saints. Mm-hmm. Halloween literally, I mean, apparently the hallowed being the holy as in the saints. Halloween is apparently means like literally All Saints. So All Saints is the first of November where Halloween is the eve of All Saints. Mm-hmm. I think that's the Christianization, yeah. which is also like, I think for people that don't know a lot of Halloween, at least that's kind of how I thought of it. I, I knew that it was the eve to All Saints Day, yeah. but I didn't know the pagan quote-unquote history behind that and would you associate all saints like those santos with um with the dead because i feel like i associate it with the dead Mm, yeah i don't know uh i'm just trying to think like in latin america there are a bunch of like traditions in relation to the dead but i don't know if they are connected to christianity or not actually Mm. so if i say anything about that i would be lying just yeah (laughs) Yeah, I'm pretty sure they used to go to the cemetery, a cemetery in Spain on All Saints Day. It was mm. like a thing that you used to do on Todos Santos, is go to the cemetery. I'm trying to think now if it's something to do with the dead. But apparently there was for a while, the 2nd of November was also like, they tried to create a kind of a, a Christian um, Halloween, like a celebration, but no, not a Halloween at all, actually, really. It was for celebrating everyone who who had passed on, like uh, spirits. Mm. Um, and they wouldn't have called them spirits, would they? <laughs> There's only one spirit for the, <laughs> for yeah, the Christians. But... The Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I do think it's really interesting because it shows also just the power of the Catholic Church and the narrative it perpetuates. Mm. The fact that when we think of Halloween, of course, we first think about just the, the, the party that we know from movies and whatever. But then when we think about the origin, most of us during the meeting, at least, we thought about, oh, it probably has to do something with All Saints. Um, which shows the power of the Catholic Church in like erasing pagan traditions. Mm-hmm. And I think, as you mentioned, those movies, that's kind of the next step in this like rebranding of Halloween that we see now. That Maybe like we. Yeah, so it's the Americanization. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you want to um, also tell us a bit of that. Uh, Americanization of Halloween? Well, I suppose like. <laughs> Maybe it can be symbolized in the pumpkin. So, like, pumpkins don't exist in Ireland, for example. They don't exist in Europe at all. It's an American uh, vegetable. Uh, I suppose a turnip is the closest thing in Ireland. Apparently, the, the pumpkin comes from the um, carrying back of the embers from the bonfire to put them mm. into something so you wouldn't burn your hands. Apparently, it could have been a turnip with a hole in it, and that's where the idea oh. of carrying it. But then they talked uh, about in America, the guy with the pumpkin head as well as, like, another... But that's an American tradition or something about uh, I am Jack. completely ignorant about this. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, actually, I'm relatively ignorant too about it. I just know there's a guy with a pumpkin head. <laughs> I, I, I have that image in my head, but it might just be from like a Halloween thing also. Yeah. Like someone that put a pumpkin up it's in their head. Before Christmas. Or yeah. <laughs> Tim Burton, where are you? <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, it's actually interesting. So um, Halloween was started as like a pagan tradition and was then appropriated by the Catholic Church. 
But then it came to America and became something even more like um, distant from its origins. So um, it became commercialized and... Um, commodified? <laughs> yeah, commodified. Mm-hmm. And I think also something important to understand here is that um, it is it was still a process of cultural appropriation, which we will define later, but as Claire was saying, there is, with the Christian church, there is a lot of power, right? And it's these power differentials that mark when something is appropriated or it's just, like, you know, evolving, because, like, you know, many traditions just evolve over time, but, like, in the case of the Irish that migrated to the United States, because it was, like, a very, like, important migration, it's not just, like, a few people that went there, um, they were not originally even considered white. Mm-hmm. So Ignatiev does a lot of research on how, in the book, like how the Irish became white, uh, particularly looking into the assimilation of the Irish in the US, while before they were still considered like a different race. So being a different race, there is a difference in power. Therefore, why we are considering this like Amer- Americanization of Halloween not to just be like a transition into something else, but um form of appropriation. Yeah, so of course like the Irish as not being Anglos in America weren't considered by the also being migrant population and being kind of uh, an underclass. Um they weren't considered white until a certain point and they used uh the oppression of other races um in U.S. to get a kind of a step up and to become white in the 20th century, like in the mid-20th century. So like Ignatius book like traces that. Um, I think it's important to see it how it wasn't just reappropriated by the Anglos, by Americans from Irish people, but by Irish people who moved to America and then gradually over the years became white as they assimilated in the U.S. to achieve influence in that in the U.S. as well. Yeah, I think this, like, it just makes everything, like, much more nuanced, you know, because it's not that, like, Irish people going to America, they also, you know, when you migrate, you mostly want to assimilate, but still keep some traditions. Like, migration is a very, (laughs) it's a very complex topic, like, I guess we're not gonna solve any issues here, but um, basically by understanding that, yeah, also, like, Irish people in in America were not... Uh, the same eventually as Irish people that stay in Ireland as well. But definitely bear in mind that uh, difference in power and like racialization there was of Irish not being considered Anglo-Saxons or like white. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're not Anglo-Saxons, but they were not considered white. Yeah. 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 Um, Until they were. Yeah. Until <laughs> they were. Yeah. Which makes yeah. it, I think, uh, today very interesting because I, I, I would have thought like, it was a much smoother transition, I guess, yeah. uh, for Irish migrants in the well, US. I suppose it did take years, yeah. but eventually, like nowadays, it's like, you know, the president can say that he's part Irish, like Joe Biden. I mean, Kennedy was the first the first True. one to say that he was Irish, you know. <laughs> well, no, before that, actually, there was never anyone that had an Irish connection mm. that I know of, I think. I guess in retrospective, that's, yeah, it's huge for... Yeah. for well, it yeah. was a huge thing for Irish, for like Irish people to have like 
a president of the US who was like had Irish blood in the 1960s was this big thing mm. like that he could be a Catholic and be president of the US whereas nowadays it's just like taken for granted it's just part of it's all the one kind of class mm. when I think about like Halloween and, and the way it came to the US I don't necessarily think it's problematic if Irish people brought their own traditions mm. to like a new country because first like you said when you're migrating you want to take something of yourself as well um, I think uh, it becomes more problematic actually when um, it was almost appropriate by capitalism to make profit off of it mm. um, so um, trick-or-treating you have like the whole candy business um, uh, the, the, the selling of costumes of movies yeah, even uh, one of the first ways that like Halloween was like rebranded in the US was through Hollywood appropriation. So like making movies in this new concept of Halloween. And I'm just going to quote here um, this author, Rogers, who looks into... Seven? Seven. Yeah, yeah he looks into Seven and uh, how it arrived in North America as an Irish and Scottish festival. But the focus in North America was on sadism and all this, like, subversion of uh, social norms, like turning upside down uh, and what, what what you're used to, and then gaining some temporary freedom of expression. And I think that's very interesting because that's something that I think of when I think of Halloween today, mm-hmm. like I was talking about it with a friend that like uh, what costume we would put on this year for this Halloween party and she said she wanted to go as something that she wouldn't really like feel comfortable wearing um, normally. So I guess it is today still like a moment where you are like free to like go as something completely different than what you're from, like that what you're usually like or something like that. And I think that also... Um, ties in with why a lot of queer people actually really like Halloween. Um, I I know a lot of queer people say like Halloween is the the queerest uh, like festive party that there is Um, because it's all about dressing up. It's about um, like subverting those kind of norms uh, that we have to live by in normal society. Um, And this is a time where you can, yeah, Kind of just f- around with your style, uh, wear something that you normally wouldn't, and you can get away with it because you can always claim like, oh yeah, it's just a costume, so whatever. Yeah, it's interesting because like it's always like in that uh, Christian washing of these mm-hmm. uh, traditions, you have like the party before the holiness, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's what carnival basically is. It's like partying before the 40 days that you have to uh, fast before Easter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess here it's also, you know, it's the eve to all sins say, so then you party and then you become holy. <laughs> well, wow. I mean, the party thing is, the, is American, isn't it? It's like yeah, you, but I guess it might Well, have... I mean, we did a pagan party. Yeah, but it wasn't because there was <laughs> we, like... A... I say we as a fair member. <laughs> <laughs> well, but like... You're immortal. <laughs> <laughs> but in that... In, in that original tradition there was no like uh holy thing coming later right it was just like mm-hmm. literally about like death and winter and like darkness coming mm-hmm. rather than like oh get all the party over of your body because all sense day is tomorrow 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Which I think is a very Christian thing to do. <laughs> well. Yeah, but then you've also, I mean, either way, you've got three months of darkness if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, mm. especially the further north you are. So by the time you get to Ireland, you know, you've got sunrise at about half nine and sunset at about half three, you know, in the winter. So I think um, I still associate it with that arrival of darkness and like being... <laughs> greeting it as if to say like you know don't kill me this year mm. <laughs> yeah well i guess we kind of covered what we had on the halloween tradition itself and like the history of it right mm-hmm. like so how yeah. it went from like this cultic tradition then like holy fight by the church or something like that and then um with the arrival of irish migrants to the united states uh, a whole new level of like uh, appropriating it and like highlighting different aspects so there's like a very big disconnect I think between what um, this American version has from the Celtic one and what we're, we're talking before recording is like it's really shocking how much there is um, like the, the absence actually of any respect to nature in the new American version, mm. while like as we we're saying before, it was before the great darkness of winter arrived, and you're like, just please don't kill me, which it may be <laughs> Morrigan, or it could also be winter itself that yeah, like killed you, yes, you know. Yes. Um, well, now there is a lot of spookiness and like idea of horror, but nature is not really there. Yeah, what about um, the capitalist reappropriation and what that means? Yeah, so um, cultural appropriation was defined by uh, Arya as uh, taking or taking over of a dominant group, the creative or artistic forms from another, uh, often subordinate culture. Um, So we can say that white people, basically, or like white Americans took over this pagan tradition. We can say that the Catholic Church took over the pagan tradition. But of course, cultural appropriation also plays a huge role in Halloween in the sense of the way that Halloween is um, celebrated. So in the form of costumes and everything. Yeah, so it is very complicated, I guess, to like draw boundaries, you know, in like, I guess what a culture is, where does it end, where does it start, and also the idea of ownership of a culture that is also something very Western in a way. So it is hard to use this concept sometimes because you're talking specifically most of the times about traditions that are, are not Western. So maybe the idea of ownership does just not match with those traditions or customs or whatever. Um, but for the sake of Simplicity, we're still going to use cultural appropriation here. I think also cultural appropriation is such a useful tool because it really tells us about the power imbalances that exist between certain groups and cultures and um, how uh, one group might have the feeling of uh, like the audacity always to be able to like take something and claim it as their own and make it part of their own culture. so, like cultural appropriation, we can also really tie back with colonialism. Um, colonialism almost legitimized like this action of taking from other people's cultures. Um, we can see it now, even in today's society, in 
in the form of museums. So, for example, the British Museum, which is built around stone and art. Um, so, yeah, it's also like museums as an institution also goes back to colonization. So, um, and it's also a form of cultural appropriation, just being able to take like these artifacts from another country and use it to boost your own status. Mm, it's cultural capital, like for the consumption yeah. and for consumption as well, not even to be made your own, but just to be consumed in the metropole or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, like in London, as if everyone would be passing through London. <laughs> We're talking about the idea of like why it should be, you know, in London. I don't mean like uncritically, but why why they would think anyone would defend the idea that it would be in London as if it was uh, the capital of the world, like it's this natural place obviously for all culture to be there to be consumed you know but i think it goes back to these like differentials of power and like someone being in that position to say i have the knowledge to curate these uh, and and take care of these um pyramids or like Mm. uh, frescoes from whatever uh so i'll take care of them don't worry Mm -hmm. um while they were produced with a specific um, purpose and a specific history in other parts of the world. And I think, again, we see that disconnect between what it was meant to be uh, in their original form and tradition and now what it's uh, rebranded uh, or like um, how it is like dis- um, defined now in a completely different context. Yeah, when it's hung on a white wall, all of a sudden in the center of London. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's taken yeah. from its original context, which yeah. actually makes makes it make sense. Yeah, in like yeah. in a larger culture. Yeah, and by this also we're not like implying that uh you know like there's like a form of pure culture or like mm-hmm. um that you shouldn't want to like experience different cultures because that exchange is actually very valuable, but it should be in the terms of those that are being like visited you know like as Domi was saying why do I need to go to London to see a, like Egyptian art and not go to Egypt because even if I was to go to Egypt I guess then there will also be more um, of the original purpose to that because uh, as we we're saying with Halloween all of that um, dread of the winter and like um the underworld. I mean, the underworld. I guess it's still a little bit there today, but mostly today we just like use Halloween to like party, dress up. And... Yeah, surely it's a divorce from the sacred. It's like it stops. It leaves the sacred realm and what makes it, what deifies like art in the first place as being like something that's held in a, in a ritualistic place and a and a of connection with earth or with something greater than humanity. Mm. Instead, we just commodify it. Yeah. It's just another thing for consumption between humans. Yeah. So actually, like in commodification, if you want to sell something, it has to be something that people are able to understand. Something um, very simple sometimes even. So I think if you take something of a culture and try to commodify it, it loses a lot of its nuance and it loses a lot of its uh, meaning. Because you have to be able to sell it and find a way to make profit of it. So um, actually in this process of cultural appropriation, when 
um, these pieces from somebody's culture are also commodified, um, can we still say that it actually represents like that particular culture or not? Um, because it loses those connections. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. How many times we just the aesthetic prevails over uh, that's more sacred or like uh, intimate connection that there was in the original form, and that we can really see, I think, in Halloween, where the more like dressing up part is what prevails, uh, which is purely aesthetic. You can also like argue that. The over-sexualization of costumes is also another way in which like the aesthetic prevails because it's not even anymore about like looking scary. At least mm-hmm. we're saying like maybe for kids it still is like that. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, yeah. But many other times it's just like looking the cutest and having this chance to, yeah, just dress up and go to a party. And I think yeah, this is really exemplified in in the quote-unquote sexy indigenous costumes so this is also an example of how how the sacred is taken out of it so um, for a lot of indigenous cultures in um, the u.s like headpieces and like the feathers they always resemble like have some cultural meaning and then people suddenly wear that just as a costume Um, and it's taking like the sacred meaning of those headpieces out of it instead makes it something not only commercial, but also it sexualizes it and um, it sexualizes indigenous people as a whole. And we we know that um, especially like um, um, indigenous women still face a lot of violence against them, like a lot of um, uh, instances of rape or um, um, where they're being taken and just disappear. Um, so these things do have like real life consequences, like the sexualization in Halloween of these certain groups of people. It contributes to this larger context of violence. Mm-hmm. And in this also, also in this process of appropriation and leaving the aesthetic only, um, I think it's also uh, a way of uh, making certain cultures which are as we were saying before, like, I guess, more vulnerable in this hierarchy of power mm-hmm. um, as, like, the exciting culture and something exotic and something that, like, you just put on a dress for a night, you don't understand the context again, and that's it. And, um, for example, well, Bell Hooks writes about this and she says ethnicity becomes spice seasoning that can leaven up the dull dish that is mainstream white culture. So exoticism or like finding these things exciting and just something fun to do is oftentimes taking advantage of yeah cultures that are more uh, vulnerable, I guess, uh, because they don't have as much uh, power mm-hmm. to stand as... Uh, strongly as others because they're historically the colonized cultures i suppose mm-hmm. and i can't think of any examples of colonizer cultures that are celebrated in this way um yeah i just wanted to say it's also especially harmful because for for these white people that um, um wear these costumes that relate to other people's culture it's like for them a a, a fun thing to do and like a fun experience or whatever 
people who actually live within those cultures, they face like uh, real life consequences for certain choices that they make. For example, like um, certain hairdressers or uh, like braids, for example, like black women are marginalized basically for the way they wear their hair. So in the workplace, it's considered unprofessional, but then people can wear those um, hairstyles in real life, but also in combination with blackface, do it with Halloween, uh, just for funds, I guess. Um, but it's it's really harmful because like white people don't face those same consequences and it's uh, really disconnected from reality. Okay, so there is this concept called the pizza effect that pretty much sums up what we were talking about in relation to cultural appropriation. And it's the idea of taking something from a minority culture, repackaging it and selling it back to the culture to you, like, that you took it from. Um, it's a term coined by Miss Barty, I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, so basically, this idea uh, means that for example, in the case of Halloween, uh, you take uh, the traditional Celtic um, festival and then you just repackage it in the United States right now and then you sell it back to Irish people today. The whole name of the pizza thing comes because pizza was a simple Italian food taken to the USA again by immigrants and it was redeveloped and commodified brought back to Italy as it's like more valuable form to replace the original pizza. And something important I think still to bear in mind is like appropriation can change things like in a good way I guess. Like you know that like not all change is bad, but it is something to bear in mind where like the people you're taking from are a minority culture that don't have the same stand on like a hierarchy level than the ones that are taking it from. Because that takes away all their power to actually, you know, uh, reinforce the values or sacredness of their own traditions. I think, yeah, that was it for today. So we have three okay. takeaways for you guys. None of them is a pizza. <laughs> um, I suppose the pagan takeaway from all of this is that uh, the culture of, um, of scariness of Halloween, of fear, is comes from an origin in the fear of the underworld and the fear of nature the fear of um, mother nature as Morrigan as the underworld and respect for that and yeah that ties in with the second takeaway which is don't take traditions at face value there's often like a much more interesting history behind it like with Halloween and it's a lot of fun to learn about it yeah, and lastly, uh, most of the processes of cultural appropriation, if not all, always have to do with differences in power. So whenever you come to a place that you're like, oh, maybe this is like something that was culturally appropriated, think about the groups that were part of that process. What's the group that had the most power and what's the group that like was uh, something was taken from them? Um, I think that's like, yeah, that's it for today. Yeah, you can have a Thanks for listening and till next month. Bye!